Good morning. So first of all, let me just uh, echo Stephen and say happy Father's Day to all of you. Uh, and let me just remind you that not every father has been actually a biological father. There's a lot of dads out there who are dads as foster dads, dads as adoptive parents, or just dads who are investing in the lives of kids, little league coaches and soccer coaches and school teachers and all of those kind of roles as we as we think about our society these days and we shrug our shoulders and go man there's a lot going wrong in a lot of ways one of the things that is God's answer to that is great dads and great people who are playing the role of father in the lives of people so uh, I just want to say thanks to all of you who are doing that and to remind us all that Wherever you might be on the whole dad spectrum, maybe you don't have the greatest of experience with your own dad. Maybe you realize you haven't been always the greatest dad, but it's such a cool thing that we get to come together and worship the father who is the one and only true perfect father. Amen. So let's just all uh, turn our eyes to him and try to be a little bit more like him. And uh, maybe God will do some amazing things through us. So anyway, happy Father's Day to all of you. Um, I want to I want to begin just to kind of bring you guys up to speed a little bit. We're going through the book of Romans and asking the question, what is the gospel? What is this good news that God talks about in his word? What is it all about? What does it all mean? And and one of the things that can really throw us off a little bit is that we come on Sunday mornings. I talk for, I don't know, like five minutes, 10 minutes usually, right? Yeah. And and um, you get that little chunk, and we zoom in, and we focus, and then we go off, and we do our thing, and we come back a week later, and we're a week out of the context of what we just uh, learned about, and now we jump back in, and we're getting it in little chunks, but you have to remember, the book of Romans was written um, as a letter to the churches in the Roman Empire, and so the way that this went down was that um, there was somebody, they didn't have leather-bound Bibles in those days. They had very few scrolls of these letters, right? And what they would do would be they would take that scroll from local assembly to local assembly, and somebody would stand up and read the entire thing beginning to end. It was written as an as a... Um, unfolding story, right? It was written to be heard all at once or read all at once. And so for those of you who are thinking, man, this guy preaches too long every week, just be glad I don't read you the whole book of Romans every week, right? But I wanted us to get some perspective because I want us to hear it from the perspective of those who would be hearing the whole thing all at once. And so I thought it would be a helpful thing to do this. We, we brought in a, a, a cross and put it right here in the middle for this reason. Um, I wanted to uh, give you guys a visual picture of all of this. In the first few chapters of Romans, uh, Romans 1, Romans 2, into Romans 3, Paul is introducing the problem to those 
who have not yet experienced the grace of the cross, right? So in Romans chapter 1, he basically is uh, addressing those that we would look at and say, man, these people are just blatant sinners, people, murderers and adulterers and all of these people that are doing all these terrible things and and just uh, blatant about it and don't seem to care that they're going to answer to a God one day. And Paul says to them, you are without excuse. That's chapter 1 of Romans. You are without excuse. Remember, that's happening on this side of the cross. Those of you who have not experienced the grace of the cross, he says, and you're blatantly sinning against the holy God, you are without excuse. And then he gets into chapter 2 and he says, you know, those of you who um, really aren't so blatant in that, you're, you're kind of a good person. You, you follow the rules and you do what you're supposed to do and you don't lie, cheat, and steal or go with people who do and all that kind of stuff. Then uh, I want you to know something, he says. You are also without excuse. God has written in your heart an awareness of his existence. He has painted across the skies and all of creation the power of his beauty, and he has made himself evident to each of us and given us a conscience, and so we too are without excuse. Even those of us who think we're following the rules, none of us is following the rules to perfection, and so we're without excuse. And again, we're still on this side of the cross. And then he says, and those of you who are highly religious people, who have memorized the scripture, you come to church every week, you follow the rules, you try to pray before meals, and you give a tenth of everything and all of that, you do all of those kinds of things. He says, I want you guys to know that you too are without excuse. All of us condemned before a holy God. Remember we said there's good news and there's bad news. Well, it begins with the bad news. And the bad news leads us in this direction. The scripture says in Romans that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Right? The idea is that he would make us aware of our brokenness so we would know the need for his kindness so we would turn to the cross. But then we get to the place in Romans where the cross comes into the story and he explains the grace of God. He goes, that was a huge problem and it was everybody's problem and we were all in the same boat. But God, while we were yet sinners, loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us on the cross and then what is it that happens just this side of the cross like three days this side of the cross anybody remember there's a resurrection right there's an empty tomb just this side of the cross we started talking about this last week we said that that empty tomb means that it's not just that he died for us to pay the price for our sins but that he lives for us and lives in us and lives through us so the life that exists in Christ can now exist in us. And that leads us to this question of, okay, it was terrible before the cross. We got to the cross and we heard the good news. What happens beyond this? Does this cross, does the grace of the cross have any impact on my life? Does this empty tomb have any impact on my life as I continue my walk and my journey to this side of things? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. God wants us to understand that it's not just that we're broken. The story doesn't end there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay. Just, it, now's not a good time to be asleep. I just started, okay? So catch up. 
So, so the, the bad news was terrible. We come to the cross and we get amazing good news. And now the th- question is, okay, um, now what? Because we have to keep in mind that the same grace, this amazing grace that Paul has introduced to us by telling us about the cross, this amazing grace that saves us is also the same grace that keeps us. Now, you, you may be thinking after hearing all of this, thinking, well, um, this all sounds really great and everything, Pastor, but you don't know me. You don't know my story. Uh, I have done every bad thing you can imagine and probably some bad things you can't even imagine. I am so guilty, there is no way that God could ever forgive me. To which I say, listen very carefully, his grace is enough. Okay? And then, and then you might say, well, <laughs> my situation is actually worse than that because I grew up in church. I, I've been hearing about the love of Jesus since I was too young to talk. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to Christian school. I was the uh, captain of the Jesus team on my football team. I was, I was the, the center of the youth group in my church. I mean, I've heard a thousand sermons. I was at church every Sunday and, and during the midweek. And, and still, once I got to the place where I was making choices for my own life, still, I walked away from God. How There's no way God could ever forgive me. To which I say, and listen very carefully, His grace is enough. And, and then you say, well, um, you know what? Uh, here's my thing. I, I've been a faithful church member all this time. And, and I've got a fish sticker on the back of my car. And, and I only listen to Christian music. Don't let that devil stuff in my brain. And, um, and I know what's right and I know what's wrong. But the truth is, I still choose to sin. Even though God is just showing me all this grace and forgiveness and kindness and I know that it's Him that's providing and all of that, there are still some times when I sort of look God in the eye and then look away and go do what I want to do anyway. How could God ever forgive that? To which I say, and listen very carefully, His grace is enough for you too. The gospel is such good news that we as Christians need to understand that God's grace is enough. And we're going to next week start digging into this question of how about those of us who are actually really, truly sincere Christians and we love God and we worship and we do all that kind of stuff and yet we still keep stepping on the same landmines in terms of sin in our own life. What is that all about? And Paul's going to address that for us too. But for now, I want you to go to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to pick up the story toward the end of chapter 5. Uh, if, you haven't, um, if you haven't found Romans in your Bible, it's right after the book of Acts. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. And I want you to go to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up in Romans 5.18. 
And just keep your finger there. We're going to stay in Romans and go into Romans 6. But let's begin in Romans 5.18 because Paul is trying to give us some perspective on all of this. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. He's talking about Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. He's just been making this explanation that when Adam sinned, all of us fell under the curse of sin and all of us, therefore, are born guilty, right? And so he says, so then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, he's speaking of the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many may be made righteous." See, all of those things where we have a tendency to go, yeah, I hear the gospel and it all sounds good and I'm glad that all this happened and everything, but, but um, it's probably not enough for me. Here's what Paul wants us to know, and, and I say this with all love and respect, it ain't about you. Your salvation is not about you, it's about him, right? And holding on to your salvation is not about you, it's about him. And somehow living a life that is pleasing to God is not about you, it's not about your strength, it's not about your power, it's not about your righteousness, it's not about your goodness, it's about him. And if we understand that everything that we need spiritually comes only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then we understand that walking in this life is about Him. It's about His great glory. It's about His great power. It's about His amazing grace. So, back over here, bad news. All of us are equally lost in our sin. It doesn't matter if you're pretty good. It doesn't matter if you're pretty religious. It doesn't matter how much you've tried. All of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. He's made the point over and over and over again. But the good news is that no matter how vile or terrible or sinful you have been, you are still eligible for the amazing grace of God. So we take the bad with the good. The good is so much more powerful than the bad. In fact, the grace of God is so great and so powerful that it continues to work throughout our whole lives. It's not just that this moment comes where I come up to the cross and then that's where the grace hits me and then the rest of the time I'm just sort of on my own. No, no, the grace of God is so great, so powerful, so amazing that it covers us and carries us through the rest of our lives. Make no mistake, this grace that saves us is also strong enough to keep us. But also make no mistake about this, a grace that is that great doesn't just touch your life, it transforms your life. And Paul is going to talk about this in great detail as we go through Romans. So as Paul's gospel is unfolding in Romans, he's already made the argument that we're all lost in our sin. And he's all already made the argument that it is the cross and the grace of God and the empty tomb which gives us life in Christ. And now we're going to get into this discussion of what kind of practical difference does this actually make in any of our lives on a day-to-day basis. And as we get to this thought, I want to point out a danger here that exists for all of us. When we hear about how far-reaching God's grace is, and some 
bald-headed preacher stands up in front of us and says, His grace is enough! His grace is enough! His grace is enough! And we finally soak that in and go, you know what? Maybe His grace is enough. I I think maybe His grace is amazing. And so I'm going to rest in this grace. It is very easy. It's a very fine line between isn't His grace amazing to His grace gives me license to sin. It's not the same thing. And Paul is going to dig into that and talk about it. Look at verse 20. We're still in Matthew, I mean, we're still in Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter how much sin we have, there's always enough grace to take care of that. Which leads to this logical question. Since more sin leads to more grace, then shouldn't I just go ahead and keep sinning? I mean, if the, if the summary of the gospel is basically this, God forgives sin then if I was to break that down, I would say, well, then God's job is to forgive and my job is to sin? That doesn't sound right when you say it out loud in church like that. Something about that doesn't quite work. I mean, if God's job is to forgive, then my job is to sin? But you know what? Even though you say it out loud in church, it doesn't make any sense. We hear it in our heads, and it kind of does. Too often, we, we sort of justify our own sin because we are appreciative and thankful for His grace. If we understand grace, then we go, wow, it's enough for yesterday's sin and even today's sin. So maybe I've got nothing to worry about. I just go ahead and do life the way I want to and give in to whatever temptations come. And when that happens, you find yourself in whatever the situation, you're, you're home alone with your laptop. And you're realizing there's some stuff I could be clicking on that I should not be clicking on right now. But you know what? Nobody would know except for God. And he gives amazing grace. Hmm. Or, or you're doing your taxes and, and you think, you know, I've got all these personal expenses that I could write off as business expenses and the IRS would have absolutely no way to know and I would save hundreds of dollars on my tax bill. Nobody would know except for God and, and he gives amazing grace. Or, or you're, you're thinking, um, I have a chance to make it look like the work that my coworker did is really the work that I did, make my coworker look bad, make myself look good, it'll be great, and there'll be no way anybody can prove it. Only one who will know is God. And by the way, God just gives endless grace. Go ahead and fill in your own um, story there. But every one of us has some experience, probably lots of experiences, where there's a voice in our head that says, you know what, God's grace is wonderful. I'm just going to go ahead and presume upon his grace today. And so Paul is going to address this issue with us because he knows that's what we're dealing with. Why not go ahead and sin if God's forgiveness is so complete? Now, 
if you happen to manage to stay awake during like 10th grade history class, you, you may remember um, reading about this guy named Rasputin. Rasputin in the late 19th century going into the early 20th century was a Russian monk. And uh, he, he had an in with the czar and his family. And so they promoted him and he made all these political deals so that he became the head of the Russian church. Sort of the, the pope of Russian Christianity, if you will. And Rasputin happened to be a godless, wicked, hedonistic guy. And yet, he was the head of the church. Now, he was introduced here to Romans chapter 5, and he um, saw this incredible doctrine that says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And he stopped reading the rest of Paul's argument, and he stopped reading the rest of the book of Romans, and he said, this is the key doctrine of Christianity. And he went around preaching that the more we sin, the more God's grace is manifested. The more God's grace is manifested, the more glory God gets. Therefore, God's will is for you to sin more. Now you go, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. That was the official doctrine of the Russian church for 40 years under Rasputin's leadership. And he was the most hedonistic guy you can imagine, and everyone knew it. He sinned out in the open. He didn't do anything to try to hide it because he was teaching this doctrine that the more I sin, the better it is. So everyone knew that there was a different woman in his chamber every night, and nobody thought twice about it. He was just giving God a chance to show more grace. Everybody knew that he was an alcoholic, that he was completely under the control of alcohol, but it was okay because, after all, it gave God a chance to show more grace. Everybody knew that he took bribes and that if you bribed him, you could get political power in Russia. And that was okay that everyone knew because, after all, the more we sin, the more God shows his grace. He even had people murdered on a regular basis and was one of the key figures in starting World War I. Why? Because the more I sin, the more God gives grace. Now, you hear about a guy like Rasputin, and you go, what a dirtbag. He was just making excuses for his own sinful lifestyle. And if that's what you think, you're completely right. But here's why I tell you about Rasputin. Sometimes I look in the mirror, and I see Rasputin looking back at me. If I'm honest, I have to admit that sometimes I'm guilty of that same kind of thinking. That God's grace is for me like a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you're too young to know what Monopoly is, then ask your grandparents. The, the get-out-of-jail-free card, once you have it, you don't have to worry, right? You can just use it any time. It gets you out of trouble. Uh, in my family, maybe here's a better example, a more, more contemporary example. In my family, uh, we love the TV show Survivor. Any of you watch Survivor? Or are you too godly for this, you guys? <laughs> so we love Survivor, and we watch Survivor, and we talk about Survivor. We're really kind of geeky when it comes to Survivor. And um, 
in Survivor, they, if you don't know this, the idea, there's a bunch of people that are dumped on an island and they basically have to survive and every couple nights or every episode, somebody gets voted off the island and once you're voted off, you're out and you don't win the million bucks. So the idea is to stay alive. And in Survivor, they have these competitions and, and you compete against the other, um, the other survivors in order to try to win. And if you win certain competitions, you win what's called an immunity necklace. And you get to put the immunity necklace on your neck and you just walk around with your chest out all day because you know that no matter what you do, no matter what happens, no matter who you make angry, no matter what you cause trouble with, you're safe. There's not going to be a problem. Now, if you're a Survivor fan, what you realize is that those people who, when they have the immunity necklace, act like that, people remember and eventually they don't have the necklace and that's when they go home, right? But there is this sort of cockiness, this sort of arrogance that comes with knowing you got the necklace on. I can do whatever I want because I'm safe. Guys, some of us are walking around like the grace of God is our immunity necklace. Like, because I know that God has so much grace, there's nothing that I have to worry about. I'm just going to live my life however I want to live it. And so Paul addresses this issue beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's such a great question. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If you're a Christian, you need to realize just how all-encompassing your salvation is. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is an all-encompassing salvation. What it means is that the old person died, and you were literally born again. You go, oh, no, you're, you're misusing the word literally. Born again is just a metaphor. It's not. It's literal. Jesus says that if you want to enter the kingdom, a man must be born again. And, of course, Nicodemus is, uh, says, that's, that's impossible. How do I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, I'm talking about spiritual birth. But don't make the mistake of thinking that just because he's talking about something spiritual, he doesn't mean it literally. When you come to the cross, when the grace of God pours over you, it doesn't just get you out of trouble. It makes you a new creature. We talked about this again and again, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You literally are born into a spiritual life that you did not have before. There's a transition that goes on. The way that you think of a caterpillar when it goes into a cocoon and comes out as a butterfly or a chrysalis or whatever, you science teachers will get it right, but you know what I'm talking about? that it comes out a butterfly and you're like, well, where's the uh, caterpillar? It's become the butterfly. A lot of us are butterflies. 
and we're still crawling everywhere we go. And Paul says, your salvation is so powerful that it doesn't just touch you, it transforms you and makes you new. So as we talked about last week, to be born again is to have new life in Christ and to have Christ live in you. That's why the gospel talks about being in Christ, being in Christ, being in Christ, and Christ in me, Christ in me, Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's what baptism symbolizes, that God's grace changes everything. The old man is dead, and if you're a Christian today, there's a new person born. Pick it up in verse 3. We're still in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the light that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You ever wondered what this whole emphasis on baptism is all about? That for 2,000 years, Christians everywhere have continued to do this rite of baptism, and you're like, what does it do? It's all by grace, and it's, it's not about works, and you don't literally wash away your sins in the water. Why do we do this baptism thing? Listen, the reason we do the baptism thing is symbolism. It's a picture of what God has done for us. That just as Jesus died on the cross, was buried in the tomb, and rose again on the third day, we go into the water, we're buried with Christ, and raised again with him into newness of life. That's a symbol of the actual reality of what happens when we come to know Jesus. So let's not short-circuit the gospel and think that the gospel is just a train ticket to heaven. It is actually a transformation of who you are so that your old self dies and you now are a new creature and God lives in you. And since all of that is true, why in the world would any of us want to go back to living the way we used to live? That's Paul's argument. Remember how we described, a couple of weeks ago we talked about this, and we, we described, try to illustrate what this gospel does for us. We said, imagine that you are guilty of multiple murders. You've been convicted. You've been put on to death row and you've been there for years. You're just in this little cell awaiting your conviction. I mean, waiting your execution and the clock is ticking every day and the sound of the clock ticking in your head is overwhelming because you know that you deserve the punishment you're about to get and there's nothing you can do and all of your appeals have been denied and finally your attorney shows up your cell and he goes hey you've received a presidential pardon come with me you're free and he leads you out of the prison and you walk out of your cell and down a long corridor and down through an elevator and they hand you back your stuff that you brought in and you walk out 
a new person free, completely free of the, of the tyranny of the cell that you've been in. Okay? That's the gospel. Now imagine the story goes on. That having been set free from that kind of condemnation, you sort of look around outside and go, man, I have no idea what to do here. I, I don't know where to go. I, I don't know. I, I can't even take care of myself. I, I've been in jail so long. I only know how to just live in this cell. I don't know anything about it. And after a few hours in the outside, you're knocking on the prison door and saying, hey, let me in. I want to sleep in my cell tonight. That's where I feel most comfortable. There's a, there's a theological term for people who do that. They're called morons. <laughs> And basically what Paul is saying is that you got set free and you went back to prison of your own accord? What is wrong with you? Why would we do that? Why would you say that because God's grace is so wonderful, I'm still going to live in the prison that that grace was meant to set me free from? God has a much better plan for our lives, and that plan is carried out by grace. Again, Romans 6, pick it up in verse 12. Therefore, he says, since all that is true, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For in sin, shall, for sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as a slave for obedience, your slaves are the one to whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give us. This is all made possible by the grace of God. But we have to cooperate with God by choosing to walk in the grace he gives us. I like the way Paul uses this word presenting over and over. And look at verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. 
And then he goes down in verse 16 and he says, Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as a slave for obedience, you're a slave to the one whom you obey? And then down in verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Do you see the theme? He's putting some responsibility on us. It's, it's not our responsibility to somehow do enough good things to somehow make this happen. The grace of God is purely grace. It has nothing to do with your works. But as we said last week, once you have been covered in the grace, you now live in that grace. And he says that it's that grace that empowers you to stop presenting yourself, practically speaking, to sin and start presenting yourself to the glory of God for righteousness sake. That's our part. We have a role to play in all of this. And that's how we live this abundant life that Christ has made possible for us. God empowers us to cooperate in this walk of grace and he calls us to do just that. And there's so much at stake here Because God's word says, as we just read, the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The choice between a life of sin and a life of grace is the choice between death and life. It's a huge deal. It matters. It's so important that we don't just sort of wave at the cross as we go by and say, yeah, we're going to let the cross just take care of everything and now eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, but we don't have to worry because after all, the cross has covered that. And instead of that, we say, in light of this amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, I am going to live as one who has been found and not as one who has been lost. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Having been given the gift of faith and the grace to believe, why on earth would any of us choose death? When the power of the Spirit makes it possible for us to present ourselves to God. As he says later in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to present our bodies, our practical lives, as a living sacrifice to God and actually live this life. We have a choice between death and life. And Paul begs with us, pleads with us, please choose life. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, as we stand here today, really in the shadow of the cross of Calvary, we're so thankful that that shadow is cast long and far, that that because of what you did on the cross, because of the empty tomb, because while we were yet sinners, you died for us, because even death could not 
keep you. We can be alive in you. And Father, every one of us probably stands here with a certain amount of um, guilt, guilty feelings, even false guilt, maybe conviction from the Holy Spirit about the way we've been living. We come to you now and just confess that your grace is enough for even us. And we ask you, God, in that grace to let us walk in the newness of life outside of the cell of sin and in the glorious freedom of grace. May we walk with you and may you be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you guys. Have a great week. Thank <laughs> you.